to talk about fear. <clears throat> we spoke of how Dharma practice is the path of opening you know, on so many levels of our senses, of our emotions, of our bodies, of levels of silence, and how what keeps us closed to this opening are some deeply conditioned fears, some strong habits of fear that have been conditioned throughout this lifetime and perhaps over many lifetimes. We talked about the fear of pain, physical pain, and the fear of different kinds of emotional pain, or difficult psychological states. Talked about the fear of impermanence, the fear of change, and also the fear some people have of not changing, thinking that things will always stay the same. There's one other major area of fear that I think runs very deep in our minds and in our lives. And the Buddha addressed it very directly. This is the fear of death, the fear of dying. There's a story in the suttas of a Brahmin coming to the Buddha and making the comment that all beings fear death. And the Buddha replied that that wasn't so. That there are some beings who do fear death and some beings who don't. And he went on to describe who it is at the time of death is afraid and who is it that isn't afraid. As with so much of the teachings, when we stop to consider what the Buddha actually said about this, it's so obvious and so simple and so direct. And yet before we give some time to reflect on it, before we've sorted it out, it can seem quite confusing. Why is it that some people are afraid at the time of death and others are not? This is what the Buddha said about those people who fear death. Those people fear death who are not free from desire or lust for sense pleasures, not free from attachment, not free from that thirsting of the mind or craving of the mind after different sense pleasures. Because at the time of death for such people, the mind will be afraid of losing these pleasures that that we're attached to. And to the degree that we crave after sense pleasures, or thirst after sense pleasures, to that very degree will we be afraid of dying. Will we be afraid of losing them?
as the sutta says, such and such a one is grieved and worried and deeply perturbed. This is one who fears death and is afraid of it. The second kind of person who fears death, and that is one who is not free from attachment to the body. When there's craving and desire for the body, or at the time of death there's fear. And again, it seems so obvious. It's precisely the body which is dying, precisely the body which is being lost to the degree that we're identified with being the body, to the degree that we take this body to be who we are, to be self, to be mine. Inevitably, there'll be fear of death because we're losing what we are identified with. We're losing what we're attached to. So that's the second kind of person, the second kind of craving or attachment that causes fear. There's a third kind of person or situation which conditions fear of dying. And that is the kind of person who has not done anything good in their lives, who has not done anything noble in their lives not helping those who are in need of help, not protecting those who are in fear. And instead, have done many unwholesome deeds or unskillful deeds. Because at the time of death, this lack of having done anything wholesome or many wholesome things, and the remembrance of the unwholesome actions These come up in the mind and they cause fear, they cause anxiety, they cause disturbance. So if there's a thirsting or a craving for sense pleasures, we could call it addiction, the addictive mind, if the mind is addicted to sense pleasures, if there's attachment or identification with the body, strong identification with the body. If there has not been, if we have not performed noble actions in our lives, good actions, actions of kindness, actions of love, and instead have performed many unwholesome actions, all of these are the causes for fear at the time of death. And the fourth condition, the fourth cause of fear of dying, is perplexity or confusion about the Dharma, about how things are working, about what is actually happening. Because then at the time of death, there is great confusion. And we don't know. We don't know what's going on. There are powerful forces at work at that time. Powerful forces in the body, in the mind. If we have no understanding of the Dharma, of the nature of the mind itself, So then there's confusion and there's fear. Then the Buddha went on to describe, in just a parallel way, those people who are not afraid at the time of death. 
again, it becomes obvious. Those people who are not afraid, who are not fearful, who are not confused, are those who are not addicted to sense pleasures, for whom the loss of sense pleasures is not a problem. Where there's no thirsting, no craving, no grasping. And it seems so clear. <laughs> you know, as we're, as we're in the process of losing these things, if there's no craving for them, there's no problem. And if there's strong craving, strong attachment, then there is a problem. If there's no attachment to the body, if we understand through our practice that this body is not self, it's not I, if we're not attached to this form of the body, for that person again at the time of death there's no fear. The body is just material elements. Can we let it go? There's no fear for the person who has done many good things in their lives. You know, when people really are committed to the practice of kindness and the practice of generosity and the practice of metta, of actually being loving, and we practice and we cultivate it, at the time of death, those forces, those paramis, become operative. And so instead of the remembrance you know, of many unwholesome things that we've done at the time of death, what is remembered are all these wholesome deeds, skillful deeds, deeds of kindness and compassion. And likewise, the person who is not afraid of death is the person who does not have confusion about the Dharma, who has practiced who has really looked at the nature you know, of the mind and of the body, so that we know. We know what is going on. We know the nature of things. We understand the impermanence. We understand the emptiness, the selflessness of it all. So for that person, there is no confusion. There is no fear. For me, what's important in this teaching is not to see it simply as um, a theoretical description of what happens at the time of death, but actually use it as the core of our practice moment to moment. Now, as we go through the day, can we watch, can we see when our minds are addicted to sense pleasures and when the mind lets go, when the mind is free? Can we see when we're caught up and identified with the body, when the mind is free of that? Can we appreciate our own practice of the Dharma, our own growing clarity about the nature of things? And so, this teaching seems to me very immediate. It's what we're doing now, moment to moment. And it also has these consequences at the time of death. But it's not to wait until we're dying. It's to see the power and the import of these four things right now.
it's helpful, I think it's very helpful as training for dying, not only to see how the mind gets attached and craves and desires, but also to recognize those moments in the day when the mind is free of those things. So we begin to recognize more and more clearly and immediately the natural purity of the mind, the natural purity of awareness. And we have many moments through the day. And as I was suggesting this morning, we hear a sound, and there's just the moment of hearing, there's just that moment of pure awareness. There's no grasping, there's no identifying, there's no story-making, story-building. There's just the natural, pure awareness in the moment of hearing, or in a moment of breathing, or walking, or stepping, or anything. To learn to recognize the purity of awareness. And the, the more we recognize that now, the many times during the day when that's arising, when we're not caught, when we're not lost, when we're not daydreaming, but we're actually awake, the more we recognize that quality of mind now, at the time of death, it becomes our great refuge. We can rest in that natural awareness at that time as well. This was the last area of fear that I had wanted to talk about, this fear of death, what conditions it, and how we can be free of it. A question also arises, in general, when fear arises in our lives, whether it's on retreat or in our daily lives, how do we work with it? How do we work with the arising fear in the mind? Because at times it's very powerful, it's a very very compelling energy. The first step in working with fear is to recognize it and to accept it. We need to recognize it when it appears, when it arises, that this is fear. Feeling it both in the body, feeling it in the mind, the emotional quality. And not only recognizing it, but coming to a place of acceptance. It's okay. It's okay that we're feeling it. We don't have to get rid of it. We don't have to do anything about it. We can simply feel it. We can open to it. To feel the fear. We don't need to be afraid of fear. Fear itself is another arising appearance. It has a particular quality to it, and it has its own particular unpleasantness. But that's okay. Just like pains in the body are okay. We don't have to close off from it, we don't have to run from it, we don't have to defend ourselves from it. Can we just, okay, let me feel it. Let me just see what it is. It's helpful with fear to unpack the experience of it, because often it comes as a whole constellation of bodily sensations, of thoughts, of images, of emotions, 
And often because it's so many things at once, we can get confused and caught and identified with it. So it can be helpful to systematically unpack it. Okay, what's happening? In this experience of fear, what are the components? What are the thoughts that trigger it? What is the image that triggers it? What are the particular sensations in the body that we feel? What is the flavor or texture of fear in the mind? Instead of protecting ourselves from it, we're actually going right into it, taking an interest in understanding it. This is fear. This is what what it's about. An image that has helped me a lot in working with fear in terms of relating to it in a soft way, in an open way, in a gentle way, has been to imagine how I would be with a frightened child. And if there was a child who was frightened, how would we be with it? I think that we would all be there in a very caring way, not buying into the fear. We probably wouldn't be telling the kid, you really should be afraid. (laughs) (laughs) And I think with any degree of wisdom, we wouldn't be judging or condemning the kid. You know, you shouldn't feel that. It's more that sense of just being present, of being caring, of a certain tenderness of heart, without buying in, without condemning. That quality of acceptance. Not making any demands. And if there were a child, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be making demands on it with respect to the fear. So can we be that way with ourselves when fear is arising? Treat ourselves in just that same way, not buying in, not condemning, not making demands, just being there. What I've noticed in my practice working with fear is that this attitude is quite amazing because this attitude of mindful, mindful gentleness, or gentle mindfulness, what it does is it allows the fear to decondition by itself. It's as if it, if it just provides the space that's not resisting and not buying in and not identifying, it's just there with awareness and it allows the space for the fear to decondition itself, for the knot to untie. Resting in this natural, gentle awareness with what's present is really our great refuge. Just resting in the natural awareness. You know, over the, the last weeks, I know Steve has told you many kayaking stories. I have one story. <laughs> and I couldn't wait for the opportunity. <laughs> it wasn't actually kayaking. Actually, I was, I was on this river rafting trip 
I would, where there were uh, kind of boats that were rowed, but along with it were these kind of toy kayaks, you know, little inflatable things that, uh, you know, you could go along and very unstable. And so we're going down this river. And I know, probably from what Steve has said or your own experience, you know that there are things in rivers called holes. I had had no idea that there was such a thing as a hole in a river. (laughs) But it's, you know, something where the water goes over a rock in a certain way and it kind of creates this hole, you know, like a vortex. So I'm in this little inflatable kayak. And I'm going down the river and I hear people shouting, don't go near the hole. (laughs) Of course, where is it going? It sort of went right over the rock, down into the... And it's really, it's a very powerful... It is, it is really like a vortex of, that, that just pulls you down. Fortunately, I was wearing this light vest, you know, and it's, it's all happening very quickly and very intense, and sort of down in the hole, pulled down under. The light vest buoyed me up again. And again, it was so strong, it pulled me down. And it was one of those moments... <laughs> <laughs> but fortunately, the buoyancy of the life vest uh, was stronger than the uh, downward pull. And again, it sort of pushed me up and then I floated out of it. And later on, just reflecting on this experience and sort of the intensity of the situation and the feeling of safety, even in the midst of it, I had because of the life vest, it reminded me somewhat of the safety of this power of awareness. No matter what vortex we're pulled into, uh, we're pulled into it, we go down, our life vest is the power of mindfulness. Our life vest is the power of awareness, which keeps pulling us back to the surface, so to speak. It keeps the mind coming back to a place of equilibrium, of safety. And so it's to learn that about ourselves, to learn that about the nature of awareness. The awareness itself is not touched by what is appearing. The awareness can always be there. It's like... It's our place of refuge. And that's what we're practicing. We're practicing recognizing it and abiding in it, living in that place of awareness. We don't particularly want to start practicing it in times of being pulled down into a vortex. You know, if we start practicing it, noticing the in and out breath, or a step, or a sound, or a thought, but as we stabilize that awareness, and we recognize it, oh yeah, this is what awareness means, this is what mindfulness means, then in those situations that do become intense, it's right there. Or almost right there. You know, we might get pulled down a little bit, but we come up again. So it's the first way of working with fear. Learning to recognize it, coming to an acceptance and developing the skill of relating to it, relating to it well and softly. 
The second way we can work with fear is really to take the measure of the situation. And this means we apply some discriminating wisdom. There are some fear, some fear arises in the mind which is actually wholesome. And there are some fears which are unwholesome. What's a wholesome fear? A wholesome fear is when we're in situations that are actually dangerous. And this kind of fear is saying, it's not hating, it's not, it's not unwholesome, it's, this is not the fear of aversion. This is the fear, the wholesome fear of discriminating wisdom. We recognize this is a dangerous situation. I need to take some care. Whether, as I used you know, some, some days ago, you see a sign radioactivity, there's just, there's just a, a common sense, yes, I'm going to avoid that. Well, there's another sign says, you know, in the ocean, undertow. There's a healthy fear that is appropriate. And so we want to learn to take the measure of situations and to see whether it's actually telling us something wise. This is something to avoid. The Buddha talked about this a lot in terms of wholesome fear of doing unwholesome actions. Unwholesome actions are just like that sign, dangerous undertow. Do we pay attention? Or do we just go diving into those actions not realizing that they lead to harmful consequences. So there is this kind of healthy fear. Again, it's not aversion, it's not hatred. It's a function of discriminating wisdom. But there's also fear that is unwholesome, that really is the quality of aversion in the mind to something, but aversion in a, in a contracting sense rather than an aggressive Aversion has these two sides. The, the aggressive side is anger and the contracting side is fear. That's the nature of aversion. So at those times, when we see that we're contracting from something out of aversion, not because it's dangerous, but because of some conditioning in the mind, then we really need to work with a genuine quality of courage Now, we need to practice going forward with it, going into it, opening to it, even though we're afraid. That it's okay to feel the fear and to still be with whatever the experience is. This little step is tremendously liberating because often we interpret fear as meaning, I can't do this because the fear is here. And that's not true. We don't have to necessarily get rid of the fear in order to do something. We can do something with fear as our companion. But we can only do that if we have come to that place of acceptance. Okay, this fear is okay. I can feel this and I can still act. So that's a tremendous empowerment because then we're not living defensively. We're not saying, I have to be completely free of fear before I move forward. No, the fear may be there and we can still move forward. 
Buddha, in some of the Buddha stories, I mean, they work with this a lot. And, uh, you know, sometimes he would recommend uh, for the monks or nuns or practitioners to specifically go to fearful places. You know, to go out into the jungle where there are wild animals and Okay, let me let me explore fear, and it takes a lot of courage. It takes a real courage of heart to do that. I'm not suggesting necessarily you go looking for tigers, but I am suggesting that fearful situations are workable, you know, and we can really incorporate them into our practice, and in some way welcome them because they are bringing us to the edge of what we're willing to be with. And that's a powerful place of practice. Can I be with this even though the fear is present? Can I learn to be with the fear and also learn to be with whatever the situation is, whatever the experience is? This is its tremendously strengthening. You know, and you can do it in small ways also. We've talked at different times about it. Extending your sitting a little bit. You know, or sitting without moving, or getting a little less sleep, or just whatever. It's, it's just playing with extending limits in whatever way. And it doesn't have to be dramatic. It can be just a small thing. The other side of this, which is equally important, is to know when to retreat. Because sometimes the experience of the situation is too overwhelming. We don't have the strength at that particular time to open. We don't have the strength to be with it, to relax into the fear. So we have to know this is not the time to do this. This is the time to pull back, to, re- to regain some balance and strength so that later we can then open. So it's getting very uh, sensitive to one's own process and what's appropriate. The Dalai Lama said something very appropriate about fear, very simple. Somebody asked him, how can one work with one's fears, with deep fears, And he said, if you have some fear of pain or suffering, you should examine whether there is anything you can do about it. If you can, there is no need to worry about it. If you cannot do anything, then there is also no need to worry. (laughs) There's really a lot of wisdom in that. Because often we just get off on a fear or worry jag without connecting it to the reality of the situation. Is there something to do about it or isn't there? (laughs) If we can't do anything about it, no need to worry. And if we can do something, then also there's no need to worry or fear.
there's one other um, aspect of fear in the practice. And that is to see how closely fear is linked to expectations. You know, because we have so many deeply conditioned models of how we think things should be. And as long as that undercurrent, undertow of expectation is there, it's impossible to be to be truly accepting of what's present. Expectation is exactly the opposite of acceptance. Because expectation means we're not accepting what's present. We want something else to be occurring. Difficult situations in the practice are fine. They are not a problem. Our practice is opening with awareness to whatever is there. The idea is not to be in some certain state or to create some certain experience. Because as you well know by now, it's all changing anyway. I'm sure all of you have had at least one really nice sitting since you've been here. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe half a sitting. You know, the mind is calm, the body's light, everything's going. So what? And it's nice, it's very nice. And there are some very wonderful experiences that happen, but that's not what it's about, because conditions are always changing. So we're not looking for that. That's not what's important. What's important is freedom in the mind, the degree of awareness of what's happening. There's one stage in practice, a very interesting stage, which comes after one, after we have a lot of these very wonderful experiences of rapture and light and calm and peace and all those things. There's a stage called discerning what is the path and what is not the path. And it's a very critical juncture because for a long time we have the idea that the path is having these nice experiences. And as long as that's our view, we're stuck. It's not true. And so it's at this juncture when we finally realize what is the path and what is not the path does not have to do with the kinds of experiences we're having. It has to do with the quality of our awareness. Are we aware of what's present? Non-attached, non-identified. Because that's the place of freedom. That's the path of freedom. So this could also be helpful to reflect on. Something else to do with fear really uh, revolves about investigating the nature of the mind itself, investigating the nature of fear itself, seeing that the fear is also another empty phenomenon. The fear itself is just another appearance in the mind. 
We've been very conditioned to react to it, to get lost in it, to condemn it, to judge it. But in and of itself, it is simply another arising appearance. When we recognize it, when we accept it, when we're in that place of acceptance, of allowance, then we can bring that kind of penetrating insight into the nature of fear itself. It's another passing mind state. This is very helpful in terms of not solidifying our sense of self as being a fearful person, which is very common. I saw myself do this. There was one period of my practice where fear was coming up a lot on many levels, sometimes incredibly primal fear. There was one time I was afraid. I was basically afraid to move. I was sitting and I was afraid to stand. I mean, it was just (laughs) this incredible state of fear. And for a long time, I got caught in building this story of myself as being a fearful person. Boy, this is really (laughs) heavy duty. You know, and I'm going to need 25 years of therapy to understand and work it out. And, <laughs> and I believed that. And it was a tremendous burden. Tremendous burden. And it took quite a while. But then in a moment, it was, it was that understanding, yes, this is just another mind state. It's not I. It's not self. It doesn't belong to anybody. It arises out of certain conditions. And it is essentially insubstantial. When we look carefully at it, when we really go into the fear itself, like everything else, it's not really there. So this gets interesting. You know, instead of just buying into the story of it and the story of ourselves, look carefully, really go into the very energy of it and see the insubstantiality of it. See that it is just another arising appearance. It doesn't mean that the first time you do this, (laughs) you'll come to see its essential emptiness. It may take many times. But keep it in mind. Keep this way of working in mind because it's very powerful. It gets right to the heart of things. In the last way of working with fear, which is very helpful, is developing the quality, cultivating the qualities of love and trust. Metta, the feeling of love and kindness, is the antidote to fear. And you may notice, you know, at times when you're doing the metta meditation, or at other times, and you really are feeling metta. You know, when, when you actually have that feeling of loving care for oneself or other people, notice how in the presence of that love, fear can exist. Fear is absent. So the more we cultivate that feeling, the more we strengthen it, that also becomes a refuge. It's like, we can develop greater and greater access to this feeling of love within ourselves. Sometimes I think of the mind as 
just like a TV, and there's, you know, the clicker, and you can kind of click through the stations. And just notice what stations you stay on. I'm told that men like to click more, more, more often than women. I just go through the stations. 30 seconds on each. But what I've noticed in my practice is that it actually is possible when certain qualities are developed, when we've practiced them. I've been in situations, for example, of feeling unhappy or down or depressed or something or other. And when there's enough mindfulness, enough awareness to really recognize, oh yeah, this is what's going on. And then I just start doing metta. It's like clicking onto the metta channel. I don't have to stay on the depressed channel. (laughs) You know, I just change stations. When, when we have practiced, which is the whole point of being here together for these months, you know, we're practicing these wholesome qualities so that they are available, they are accessible. We actually can change channels. You know, we don't have to stay stuck in an unwholesome mind state. The feeling of trust. You know, trust is really what the three refuges are about. We take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. We are trusting. We're trusting our own Buddha nature. Trusting the Dharma. This, this, it's trusting the truth of how things are. Trusting the Sangha, kind of this field you know, of beings who are practicing. Is close with this just short haiku poem. It just it expresses this feeling. It says simply trust. Don't the leaves flutter down just like that. Simply trust. Don't the leaves flutter down just like that. We can settle back into the awareness, settle back into the Dharma, surrender to the Dharma. And this itself becomes the most powerful context for being with all experience and being with fear itself. Let's just sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.